So long story short, in Mark, we've been talking about uh, Jesus as a subversive king. He's a subversive king, meaning he establishes his forever kingdom by overturning, well, really everything, (laughs) by overturning established authorities, by overturning people's expectations, by coming in a way that's entirely different than anybody uh, imagined he might come. He didn't do it in the usual ways, but subversively, almost backwardly, from the inside out, in ways that were totally unexpected. At the beginning of Mark, as we've said a number of times, in Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus doesn't say, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom is at hand, and uh, I need you to repent and believe in my campaign to become the king of Jerusalem. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say it that way at all. He comes and he says, repent and believe in the good news, which is that crazy, (laughs) God died for you, which is backwards, upside down, unexpected, not as you would think this is supposed to happen. I mean, these aren't the rules for how salvation works, right? And you want to talk about backwards, subversive, crazy, different. The cross, that is our focus today, the cross is about as unexpected and backwards and different as possible. I mean, listen, God isn't supposed to die, right? Like we know the end of the story. Most of us have heard this a number of times. God's not supposed to die. And he certainly isn't supposed to die a condemned criminal's death. That is not how (laughs) this is supposed to happen. But it does. It does happen this way. And in Mark, uh, to follow the basic narrative thread we've been talking about, the betrayal that we've talked about in recent weeks, the betrayal that's throughout the book of Mark, listen to last week's sermon if you want a bit of a condensed version of that, the betrayal that we've been seeing throughout Mark has now gone from just be- not just betrayal to mockery, torture, and death. The betrayal that we've been talking about, which is really sin, <laughs> acted out in practical terms against Jesus, the betrayal that's in Mark that we t- talked about especially last week has now become mockery and torture, meaning that betrayal has consequences. And Jesus, who didn't deserve those consequences, is the one who suffers those consequences. So why the cross? (laughs) So that Jesus would suffer the consequences of our sin. That's where we're headed. But we're going to answer that question, why the cross, a little differently than that by the time we get to the end today. Let's set the scene. In the verses immediately preceding our passage today that we just read in Mark 15, 21 through 32, in the immediately preceding context, Mark reports that Pilate, the Roman governor of that area, Pilate had Jesus beaten and whipped and sent off for crucifixion, which is Jesus suffering the consequences of betrayal. Betrayal is not just a concept. It has practical consequences that, as we see today, end up in mockery and torture and death. So the question is, why did that have to happen? Why did it happen this way? (laughs) That's the question we answer. So to continue to set the scene, when a man is condemned to die on the cross, at least in Roman law, they basically every time went to this torture first, this flogging or 
beating. The, the term that we know of mostly is called flogging. And when a man was condemned to die by crucifixion, he would also have to literally uh, carry the cross beam, the top part of the cross, on his shoulders usually, out the city, through the gates, to the place where crucifixions happened outside the gate. It was probably a 75 to 125 pound cross beam, pretty big, imagine a big railroad tie basically, on uh, one's shoulders, carrying that through the streets as a sort of parade of shame on the way to the site of the crucifixion. So often, in the Roman uh, way of things, a man condemned to die by crucifixion would have to carry his own cross. But Jesus this time, Mark tells us, couldn't make it all the way. He couldn't make the full distance because he had just been so severely whipped and beaten that he didn't have the strength to carry his own cross. Now think about that for a second. <clears throat> Victims of this form of torture often didn't live past the beating itself. Sometimes they never made it through to the crucifixion part. Uh, the, Jew, the Jews, as we know, had this rule about uh, 40 lashes minus one. The Romans didn't have that rule. And here for Jesus, the Romans are in charge of this beating. Because it wasn't the Jews carrying out this particular beating, it was the Romans. So we don't actually know how many lashes Jesus took. And just to set the scene a little bit, what, what would happen in this flogging is that they would strip the victim and tie his hands to a post above his head so that the skin on the back would be stretched out to, uh, to make the process more effective, so to speak. The victim would be laying there, hands above, skin stretched, as two Roman soldiers trained in torture on each side of the victim would stand there and take turns administering what eventually became an unspeakable beating. And listen, this wasn't the kind of, uh, this wasn't the kind of whip your parents or grandparents used to call a switch. Uh, this was a torture device. And it was well designed to carry out its main purpose of shredding flesh and muscle. It was called a flagellum, and it was a whip with uh, strips of leather. These strips of leather had embedded at the ends uh, bone and metal and glass so that when it did its job, it did it relentlessly and mercilessly. Without giving any more detail, uh, suffice it to say from the descriptions we know of in the history of, of victims of this method of torture. Jesus might have been barely recognizable as human afterwards. So that's what's gone on before we get to verse 21. So when we come to verse 21, Jesus is trying to carry this cross in this barely alive state, just coming off of a severe beating. And he couldn't. He couldn't carry it. Which is why, jumping into our text, verse 21, it says, They, meaning the Roman soldiers who are responsible for taking Jesus out to the crucifixion, they compelled a passerby. Jesus was so weak and barely alive uh, from the beating that they compelled the passerby. Now press pause here for a second. Let's talk about this compelling thing here. Uh, the word compelled is probably a bit soft 
Uh, Mark is known for being a man of a few words. And uh, the word he uses here means to force someone to do something that they probably don't want to do. It's a word that was used of forcing slaves and animals to do hard labor. And so, listen, in this scene here, the Roman soldiers aren't walking through the crowd uh, politely asking, like, if someone might perhaps uh, want to um, help this man carry this cross. They're not walking around with tea and crumpets asking somebody to help him out. Uh, We know from the text that in this parade, which probably hundreds of people are at, as it goes out to the crucifixion, they've got what's called a reed. It's more like a walking stick that they used to beat the crowd away and to beat Jesus on his head, the text tells us. So they're not just walking through the crowd saying, "Uh, would anybody might happen to volunteer? They're going through, they've got a job to do. These are Roman soldiers trained in killing. And so they're like, let's get this happening. Hey, you, get over here and carry this cross. So compelled is probably a bit of a soft word. And you'll see throughout this text a little bit more. Mark uh, sometimes will use a word (laughs) to describe a lot that's going on. And so when we see words about scourging, it's packed with all this meaning that the people at the time would have understood a scourging was nasty. Crucifixion was brutal. (laughs) Compelled, probably a little bit soft. Mark uses an economy of words to pack in a lot. And that's what we'll see here today as what he begins to tell us is that what was betrayal now becomes mockery. You'll see this mockery throughout the passage. And that mockery ends up in torture and death for Jesus. And that's how we'll answer the question, why the cross? So verse 21, we'll pick up speed of it here a little bit. They compelled a passerby whose name was Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, probably because the, the Passover feast was happening. And he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Alexander and Rufus were probably known to uh, Mark's primarily Roman audience. So they compelled Simon to carry the cross. So here's Jesus from an unspeakable beating, can't carry his own cross. Simon Cyrene does. Verse 22, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now Golgotha was outside the city, and it was called uh, the place of a skull, either because the place looked like a skull, the, the mountainside there in the rocks probably looked like that, or because it was a place where you found skulls because that's where they executed people. So some versions of it that you might have, uh, call it Calvary, same word as Golgotha, just the Latin form. So they brought him to the place called Golgotha. And it's important to note that for the Jews, the fact that it was outside the city gates meant everything. They weren't going to kill people inside their sort of holy, sacred area. This is something that's happening outside the city gates as a way of making very clear that this condemned uh, person was no longer a part of our family. This condemned person was no longer part of the covenant family. So they bring Jesus to that place, Golgotha, verse 23, and it says they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So we're not going to get into all the issues with this, but I think what's happening here is this. Wine mixed with myrrh was considered a delicacy, the kind of delicacy drink that pretty much only a king would would have the means to drink. So here is the beginning of Mark talking about this mockery of Jesus. It was betrayal, became mockery, became torture, became death. The mockery is seen that they're, they're saying, oh, let's, let's give him a drink fit for a king. Wine mixed with myrrh as a part of the mockery. But Jesus, it says, refused to partake in it. 
They mocked him with the wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then verse 24, they crucified him. Again, sort of an economy of words there. There's a lot in there. They crucified him and divided his garments among them, more mockery, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. In verse 24 here, Mark is grabbing language from the Old Testament, uh, taken directly from Psalm 22:18. if you want to look that up later, Psalm 22:18, 18, uh, where David in Psalm 22 writes in this poetic form, uses poetic language to talk uh, about his enemies around him, taking his kingly garments off of him, stripping them of his kingly garments, King David, and mocking him by gambling for them, by, by making a game of it. And so all four of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, grab that language from Psalms and use it here to say, this is the kind of mockery that was going on with Jesus. Here's Jesus, the true king, powerless before his enemies, which is not how this is supposed to happen. <laughs> As they stripped him of his clothes and made a game of gambling over them. Which means that these Roman soldiers, in effect, have begun carrying out the mockery that was betrayal. They've begun ca- carrying out what was betrayal that became mockery, became torture, became death. They're carrying out this mockery that was in the hearts of the Jews in power at the time who were seeking Jesus' death. They're just carrying it out at this point. Mark tells us early on in Mark 3, 6, as we've noted a number of times, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians, with the Romans in power, against him, against Jesus, how to destroy him. And here we are at the end of Mark. The destruction of him is happening. So verse 25 simply states the facts of the matter very plainly. It was the third hour when they crucified him. Now Mark gives... uh, no detail about the pain and the torture of, of a scourging and crucifixion. Uh, we talked a little bit about the scourging, the flogging. We're not going to talk much about the crucifixion, but we do know from history and from archaeology that death by the cross was an egregiously painful way to die. Without getting into all the details What basically ended up happening was exhaustion, suffocation, uh, being left to die as you bled, uh, and all of the body's organs stopped functioning. Actually, most victims of crucifixion in that day were known to stay alive for many days if they hadn't been too severely beaten beforehand. Which means Jesus went through a beating. Because they remark later on, oh, this didn't take long. The only relief when you were on the cross was to endure tremendous waves of pain that would shoot through your body as the victim pulled themselves up to catch a breath. Uh, We talk today as if pain is excruciating, and we use the word excruciating because it's painful like the cross. Excruciating. Cruciating. So Mark just says, they crucified him. <laughs> Which to all those at the time would have immediately meant, Ooh. on top of that, they mock him. Verse 26. The mocking continues. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king 
of the Jews. There were probably three types of crosses. The one we know is the traditional cross with a little bit of space left at the top. We think was the cross that Jesus died on because there's an inscription, a title they called it, that hung above his head. It said, the King of the Jews. Said in jest, of course, to mock him. (laughs) Interesting, isn't it? (laughs) That in the mockery, they named the truth. They didn't even know it. With him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Now a quick pause. I want to point out something about verse 28. Verse 28 does not exist in my Bible. In the ESV, the English Standard Version that I'm using, um, it's thought by most scholars to be something that was inserted by an earlier copier or an editor because ancient manuscripts, uh, we didn't have... Uh, printers or data, uh, they would have to be uh, actually printed out by hand. So this happens once in a while in copying ancient manuscripts. It's not really a big deal as much as it sounds. It's pretty common to see a few errors here and there in some ancient manuscripts. In fact, we're not going to get into all this, uh, but most estimates are that what we have in our English text today is 99.5 to 9% accurate from what the original was. So this might be in that 0.1 to 4% of uh, small errors. So some of you in a couple versions may have verse 28, which uh, my version doesn't have. And if yours does have it, it just says, the scripture was fulfilled that said he was numbered with the transgressors. So right on the heels of verse 27, it says, scripture has told us he would be numbered with the transgressors, transgressors meaning uh, the robber on his right and left. It doesn't really change the meaning, um, just so you know if you don't have verse 28. There you go. End of parenthetical statement. Verse 29. The mockery continues. Those who passed by uh, derided him. That's a fancy word for ridiculed him. Wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. They're using Jesus' own words against him. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also, the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ the, quote, king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And Mark finishes by saying, those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So friends, the question we're asking is, why the cross? Why did it happen this way? Because here we are speaking today about the central event in all of human history and of eternity. Why the cross? I think there are a few ways to answer it. Let's get there by saying this. God knew, God knew even from eternity past before any of us was a twinkle in anybody's eye, that Adam and Satan and we would choose rebellion against him. And that we would choose self instead of intimacy with him. God knew that from eternity past. So the cross was actually part of God's plan for his creation. As a means of provision for us to reclaim the intimacy we need to have with our Lord. Matthew 25, 34 Pretty cool verse. We're going to look this up later. Matthew 25:34 is a passage describing the Son of Man returning in glory, 
And Jesus speaks and he says, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He's been preparing for this from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8, another cool verse. This is even cooler, I think. This is a verse where it talks about those who do not inherit eternal life. It talks about those whose names have not been written from before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. It calls the book of life the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. God's been making provision for you since before you existed in the cross. This is a pretty cool thought. See, God knew before you were alive that your sin would mean He'd either have to destroy creation or redeem it by entering the world and taking the sins of the world upon himself. And the cross is how that happens. Simply put, and too many of us still don't believe this, simply put, the cross is literally the kind of treatment we deserve for our sin. The cross is what we deserve because of our personal sin against God. We read in Mark of (laughs) the crowds, Jesus' own family, the religious leaders, the Romans, even the disciples, Judas. They're the betrayers. They're the ones who are the traitors. But really, this is just a prototype for us. We are the ones who literally deserved the treatment Jesus received. Let that sink in for a minute. Our sin actually mocks God's rightful status as creator of the universe. You don't make up for sin. It's not possible. Our sin is actually that betrayal that became mocking, that became torture, that became death. Our sin mocks God's rightful status as perfect, holy king of the universe. But here's the amazing truth of the gospel. God redeemed us by taking on our sins for us on the cross. He redeemed us by taking our sins on the cross for one reason. And this is the answer to the question, why the cross? He took on our sins on the cross because of love. From eternity past, God's provision, knowing we would rebel against Him and shake our hands at Him and betray Him and join with the mockers and the betrayers and the traitors was the cross. A perfect, sinless God 
come in Jesus to live the life we couldn't. And the reason why the cross had to happen is because of love. Some of you know the name Brennan Manning. Uh, Brennan Manning was a pretty well-known Christian author uh, and speaker when he was alive. When he was born, his name actually wasn't Brennan. It was uh, Richard, but he changed it to Brennan, be- Brennan because Brennan was his best friend Ray's last name. His breast- best friend was named Ray uh, Brennan. And so here's why he changed his name. While growing up together, uh, Brennan and his friend Ray, best friends, they did everything together. They bought a car together. They dated together. Dub- double dated together. Went to school together. <laughs> Just a little clarification. The whole nine yards. Best friends. They even enlisted in the army together. Went to boot camp together. And fought on the front lines side by side in the Korean War. These guys were together best friends. One night during the war, they were in a foxhole. And uh, Brennan and Ray <laughs> were chatting about the old days back in Brooklyn. And, and Ray was just sitting there listening to his friend Brennan. He was eating a chocolate bar and chewing the fat with him. When suddenly, into this foxhole came a live grenade. Well, at that moment, Ray looked at Brennan, smiled, dropped his chocolate bar, and threw himself on the live grenade, exploded, killing Ray. Brennan's life was spared. Brennan changed his name from Richard to Brennan because years later when he became a priest, he was instructed to take on the name of a saint and he thought, my my best friend Ray Brennan. So he took on his last name as his first name, Brennan Manning. Now fast forward a few more years. Brennan went to visit Ray's mother back in Brooklyn and they sat up late one night talking. They were having tea when Brennan asked Ray's mother, Do you think that Ray loved me? Do you think that Ray loved me? At that moment, Mrs. Brennan gets off the couch, shakes her finger in Brennan's face, and shouted, What more could he have done for you? Brennan said at that very moment he had an epiphany. He imagined himself before the cross of Jesus, wondering, Does God really love me? Friends, the answer to him was clear. What more could he have done? Why the cross? The cross is God's answer to the question of whether he loves you. When we wonder, does God really love me? Am I valuable? Am I, am I worth something? Does God really care about me? When you ask those questions, think of the cross. You see, friends, for many of us, what messes us up is that we have learned to frame this question from our perspective. As if the main question in our lives is, do I love Jesus enough? Do do I love Jesus enough? Do I love God enough? 
Is the way that I love Him enough to gain His love back? We apply this question, do I love Jesus enough? We apply this question to our lives in a whole bunch of ways. Here's the crazy thing, friends. We learn to love Jesus when we recognize first how much Jesus loves us. That's how this works. That's actually how this works. We learn to love Jesus when we recognize first how much Jesus loves us. Which means, friends, go from here today. Go from the cross today. Living your life as a response to the Father's love for you. Does God love you? Look at the cross. When, when the accuser is telling you time and again, you are the betrayer. When you're aware of the many ways you have failed. When you're sure there is nothing and no one who would love you knowing what they might know that only you know that they don't know. Look at the cross. Let's pray.